0: Good morning, church. I'm Peter. I'm one of the pastors here at Gulf Coast. Part four of our series, The Story of God's Mission. This is an occasional series that we're doing. And in this series, we've been looking at key sentences in the Old Testament. These are key sentences that highlight key events in the Old Testament. Events that trace the story of God's mission throughout history. Or in other words, what we're trying to do is answer the question, what is God doing In the world. And importantly, for us as God's people, this helps us understand God better. Knowing what God's doing in the world, it's vitally important for us to have a clear picture of who God is. But also, knowing what God's doing in the world, it helps inform us what God wants us to do in the world as his people. So we've been looking at these things through key sentences under the image of God. What does that mean for us as God's people in the world? In Genesis two sixteen and 17, I, I was able to highlight the tragic rebellion of Adam and Eve against God in the garden, this flipping of our world upside down and what that means for God's mission in the world. And just a few weeks ago, Ryan Carver highlighted in Genesis twelve three, God choosing Abraham out of all the people on the face of the earth, God chooses Abraham to bless him and to use his family to bless all the peoples of the earth. Well, this morning, we're fast-forwarding a bit. We're getting to the time of Moses in the book of Exodus. You can go ahead and turn there, if you would, to Exodus 20, verse 2. And it's important to note that as we get to Exodus 20, verse 2 this morning, that Abraham's descendants, they're now called the people of Israel, they've been in captivity for 400 years They've just been delivered from slavery in Egypt through a series of miraculous events. They're on their way to this incredible land that God has promised them, but along the way to the promised land, God wants to speak to his people at Mount Sinai, and as we get to Exodus 20, verse 2, we find God beginning to address his people after coming out of slavery, and he says this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Would you shine through your word this morning as we study it? That we would get to know you better, that we would see what you're doing in the world and how we can be a part of it. Would you do that by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit? Amen. How do you solve a problem like Moses? Even among God's people, trying to figure out what to do with the words that God speaks to Moses at Mount Sinai, beginning here in Exodus 20, it's a constant concern. Lots of debate. Everybody's in agreement, God's words to Moses, they're important. But what to do with them, that's where the real difficulty lies. Now, certainly, I think very few people would have a problem with the verse that I just read. God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. We can all get behind that and celebrate that. That's wonderful. The only issue is God doesn't stop speaking at Exodus 20, verse 2. He continues on to deliver what we know as the Ten Commandments, right on the heels of this, kind of a core of instruction for his people. And now, we might read the Ten Commandments and still be in this place that we think, okay, that sounds pretty difficult to do, actually, to follow these Ten Commands. But hey, God's provided some guidelines. I'm thankful for that. That's helpful. Thank you, God. The only issue is God also doesn't stop speaking at Exodus 20, verse 17, either, By some counts, and there are minor disagreements about this, God proceeds to delineate 613 various commandments for his people at Mount Sinai. Commandments that cover household life, economic life, judicial life, religious life, political life, all of life. And for being honest, when we read this, it seems as if God has moved from helpful to burdensome. From good guidelines to meddling micromanagement. Seems even as if the biblical authors are a bit divided about what to do with God's words to Moses. On the one hand, you've got something like Psalm 119, 14 and 15. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts, fix my eyes on your ways. That's pretty positive. The psalmist likes these laws. On the other hand, You've got Paul in Galatians 3.23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. That doesn't sound so good. Did God release his people from bondage in Egypt only to imprison them under these commandments given to Moses? How do you solve a problem like Moses? Moses. Was a bit of a spoiler alert for later in the sermon. I don't think the Bible itself is confused about what to do with Moses. Nor do I think the psalmist and Paul are disagreeing with one another. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. I think what we're gonna find this morning is that Exodus 20, verse 2 is immensely helpful for us in figuring out what to do with Moses. Because what we'll find is that God's interaction with his people at Mount Sinai in the wilderness, this law that he establishes to help guide them, they're not interruptions in God's mission. And that's often how we view Moses, as an interruption in God's mission. This isn't meddling micromanagement that thankfully for us as God's people now today has kind of been set aside. This was a failed detour in the mission of God. no. What we'll see is that God's interaction with his people at Mount Sinai, it wonderfully draws on what we've learned about God's mission so far in the book of Genesis. It wonderfully advances the clarity and the scope of God's mission. It wonderfully sets up where God's mission is going in the rest of Scripture. And most importantly, it anticipates God's sending of his son Jesus into the world. God's words to Moses aren't a problem to be solved They represent the unfolding of a wonderful new chapter in the story of God's mission. And this new chapter in the story of God's mission has a lot to instruct us as God's people even today about who God is, what he's doing in the world, and how we can be a part of it. So this morning, we're going to explore this ongoing story of God's mission as revealed in his word to Moses under four headings. First, God's mission is rooted in redemption and relationship Second, God's mission requires obedience. Third, God's mission begins at home. And fourth, God's mission goes to the ends of the earth. We're gonna look first at God's mission being rooted in redemption and relationship. Let's read Exodus 20 verse two one more time. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery might be helpful just to have a little bit more context for Exodus 20, verse 2, as we move forward. God's people, as as I said a minute ago, they've just been delivered from 400 years of slavery outside of the land that God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. But this time in Egypt, it wasn't unexpected for Abraham's descendants. In fact, God had promised Abraham that his people would sojourn in a foreign land for 400 years. In Genesis 15, verse 13, he says this, Know for certain that sounds like it's going to happen. Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But also, God's deliverance of His people out of Egypt at the end of this four hundred years also wasn't unexpected, because God had promised that in Genesis fifteen fourteen. But I. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out for generations. This was still very, very difficult for God's people. But nor do these promises make God's eventual redemption of his people out of slavery any less stunning or miraculous. They were relieved to be released from their bondage. After 400 years in slavery, God heard his people's cries. He remembered his covenant with Abraham. He powerfully delivered them from servitude to Pharaoh. There's these 10 unforgettable plagues. One stunning episode at the Red Sea that saw God's people going through the water on dry land and left Pharaoh's army that was chasing them at the bottom of the sea. And it's right on the heels of that stunning redemption out of slavery for 400 years that God begins to speak at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, verse 2. The importance of this one sentence as a sort of, of prelude, not only to the Ten Commandments, but to the whole law, all 613 commandments of it, it can't really be understated before God gives general moral guidelines to his people, before God gives very specific instructions to his people about every facet of life, he finds it absolutely essential to highlight who it is that's speaking to them at the mountain. Similarly, we should find it very important to highlight who it is that's speaking and giving these commands. Yes, the God who created the universe from nothing in Genesis 1 and 2. Yes, the God who was betrayed by Adam and Eve, but who still promises to set the world right through Eve's offspring in Genesis 3. Yes, the God who chose Abraham and blessed him and promised to bless the world through him in Genesis 12. But also this short prelude to the giving of the law, it underscores three specific things about God that we would do well to notice. God's lordship, God's work of redemption, and God's provision Of relationship. In giving this law, God first identifies himself as Lord, all capitals in English. This is our translation of Yahweh. This is the name that God identifies himself with at the burning bush to Moses earlier in Exodus in chapter 3, 13, and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. says, Yahweh. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. In that passage, God's revealing himself as the self-existing and self-sustaining sovereign king of Israel. The universe. Who is this who's speaking to his people at Mount Sinai? This God who dares to give his people 10 commandments and 613 laws. Who would speak this way? The God who needs nothing outside of himself for his existence and who properly rules over all things in his sovereignty. The ruler of the universe is speaking. And in this single verse prelude, God's unquestioned authority to make these demands of his people is crystal clear. I am is speaking to his people. But this prelude doesn't only highlight God's authority. It also reminds God's people that this God, I am, the unquestioned authority in the universe has graciously chosen to work redemption for his people right when they needed it. The God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, this is the God who's speaking to them at Sinai. The same God who used his infinite power to send plagues of frogs and flies and locusts on the Egyptians. The same God who had just parted the Red Sea providing a way of escape when it didn't seem possible the God who dramatically delivered them from centuries of bondage. That's who's speaking. And it's also the God who graciously relates to them because of his covenant. His relationship built on promises with Abraham. Now, the sum of what it means for God to have a covenant with his people, it's stated this way throughout scripture, I will be your God and you will be my people Or as we hear it in Exodus 6 verse 7, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. That pronoun your that we see in Exodus 20 verse 2, I am the Lord your God, it's frighteningly easy to miss. It makes all the difference in the world for those who are God's people. The self-existing sovereign king of the universe has not only acted on his people's behalf as kind of a one-off, hey, I got you guys out, now you're on your own. He's bonded himself to his people permanently and relationally. I am yours and you are mine. This is the God who will continue to speak in the 10 commandments and the 613 laws of the Mosaic Covenant. Yes, the self-existing sovereign of the universe, but also the God who's acted in history to the benefit of his people, who pledges to be with them through thick and thin. I hope you can see how pausing to reflect on this revelation of God's character at the very beginning of God's speech to Moses. It really works to flavor this whole thing, a whole different tone to this. The law is not being given by a cruel taskmaster to a downtrodden people desperate to earn his favor. The law is being given by the king of kings who's graciously chosen to relate to his people, who's dramatically evidenced his commitment to his people by delivering them from slavery. In other words, God's mission is rooted in redemption and relationship. Or to put it another way, God's laws are given to a people who are redeemed and loved. It's true of God's people under the old covenant at the time of Moses. It's true of us today, under the new covenant as well. When God calls us to the important, essential task of obedience as his people, something that we're going to talk about under our next heading, he calls us to that task as people who have been welcomed into the new covenant through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus even this morning, we're gonna celebrate gracious signs and seals of that new covenant that God has given us. We get to partake of the bread and the cup, his broken body, his shed blood, that we would be a part of his new covenant family. God calls us to that task of obedience as people who've been redeemed from slavery to sin, who had been destined to death. God's mission is rooted in redemption and relationship. But also, as we'll see in these next verses, God's mission requires obedience. Let's look back at Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those that hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, "'but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. "'On it you shall not do any work, "'you or your son or your daughter, "'your male servant, your female servant, "'your livestock, the sojourner who's within your gates. "'For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, "'the sea and all that's in them, "'and he rested the seventh day. "'Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day "'and made it holy. "'Honor your father and your mother.'" Immediately following this prelude to the law that highlights God's sovereign and gracious character, the law begins with what we just read, what we know as the Ten Commandments. The two tables of the Ten Commandments can be summarized with what Jesus calls the great commandment in Matthew 22, 37 to 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In one sense, the intention of the law, it's extremely simple. It can be boiled down to two sentences, love God, love your neighbor. If you wanna get a bit more specific, you can explain those two sentences with the 10 commandments, but still kind of manageable, right? God's only speaking to certain situations, certain parts of our lives, avoiding extremes, not too difficult. We begin to get the sense As we delve into the 613 specific laws with regard to household life, civic life, religious life, that God isn't only speaking to certain situations, certain parts of our lives, avoiding extremes. We begin to get the sense that God intends his laws to speak to every situation, every part of our lives. And when we see even Jesus teaching on a few of the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, he instructs that not committing adultery also includes avoiding lust. He instructs that not murdering also includes not hating someone in your heart. Even the Ten Commandments themselves start to send out tendrils into every facet of our life. What was made clear in the giving of God's law to Moses is that Every facet of life is this this breadth that God's desire for obedience from us has. God's mission requires obedience. It requires obedience in all of life from God's people. Not certain situations, certain parts of waiting extremes, God's laws are meant to get into every nook and cranny of the lives of God's people and dramatically change how we love God and how we love our neighbors. This brings us back, just for the moment, to one of the problems with Moses that we began our time with this morning. Up to this point, I hope you've gotten a pretty positive picture of God's word to Moses, what it says about God's mission to the world. So you might ask yourself how can Paul make a statement like in Galatians 3:23? Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Paul seems to view the Ten Commandments like bars in a prison cell, the 613 laws like links and chains around his hands and his feet. In short, Paul isn't talking about the proper use of the law as it had been graciously given in God's covenant with Israel, a people recently redeemed. Paul is talking about a gross misuse of the law that turns gracious guidance into meddlesome micromanaging, a gross misuse of the law that forgets God's gracious deliverance of his people and sees the law itself as the means by which God's people will earn deliverance. Ironically, in seeking deliverance through the law, people only find imprisonment under the law. In seeking deliverance in God's grace alone, people find glorious freedom in obeying God's law in every facet of life, allowing God to speak to every nook and cranny of our existence, radically changing how we love God and how we love our neighbors. Obedience isn't the reason for our redemption, but obedience is the proper, joyful, gratitude-filled response to our redemption. And when the law, with its call to obedience in every facet of life, when it's under, being understood properly in this way, verses like Psalm 119, 14, and 15 begin to make more sense. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts, fix my eyes on your ways. God's mission requires obedience in every facet of life. But put to its proper use, obedience to God's law is less like the bars of a prison cell chafing chains around our hands and our feet, and more like voices raised in a song of gratitude. Steps on the pathway to the restoration of joy, eager engagement in God's mission to the world. It's worth noting just briefly that our obedience since the coming of Jesus will look different in some ways than the obedience of God's people before the coming of Jesus. You may wonder to yourself, why does our worship look different from how God instructed Moses? Why don't we have the same dietary restrictions as Israel? Well, in short, Jesus fulfilled the whole law given to Moses perfectly, all of it. But certain provisions in the law were fulfilled in such a way by Jesus that they no longer require anything of us as God's people. For example, why does our worship look different from how God instructed Moses? We no longer need a temple and priests and sacrifices because Jesus identifies himself as the new temple the perfect high priest, the once for all sacrificial offering for his people. Other provisions in the law were explicitly annulled by God with the addition of Gentiles into the people of God under the new covenant. God specifically instructs the apostles that requirements like circumcision and special dietary restrictions, they're no longer necessary for God's new covenant people. But in many ways, God's expectations on us haven't changed. Jesus said he hadn't come to abolish the law of Moses and the prophets, but to fulfill them. It's exactly what we might expect, that there are certain aspects of the law that are no longer obligatory for us due to the fulfillments of Jesus, the addition of Gentiles to God's people, but it's not as if God himself has changed. God's standards of right and wrong haven't changed. God's requirements of obedience from his people hasn't changed. God's requirements of obedience in every facet of life hasn't changed. God's mission requires obedience. We'll look at one key area of life. God's mission requires obedience next. God's mission begins at home. And for this, I'm going to turn just for a minute to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I'll read verses 1 through 9 and verses 20 to 23. Now this is the commandment, the statues and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then in verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes, the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers it might come as a surprise to some of you that i've actually toyed with teaching a class here at gulf coast called parenting from the pentateuch parenting from the pentateuch i don't know if that's the most eye-popping title for a class i don't know what our sign-ups might be hence my hesitancy in going this direction i am a little bit self-aware a little bit For those seeking advice on parenting, the book of Proverbs might come to mind, Paul's instructions to parents in his letters. But the five books of Moses, parenting from the Pentateuch, when I was reading through the first five books of the Bible this year, and now I'm a a parent of two, you start to read with a little bit different eyes than you have before. These books, the books of Moses, the first five books of our Bible, They are stuffed with advice to God's people on how to raise their children in the wisdom and admonition of the Lord. They're also stuffed with warnings about how not to raise children. A lot of negative examples in these books. Now certainly there are particulars in Deuteronomy 6 about what God's mission looks like at home that I want to get into momentarily. But it's worth underscoring that the very existence of the book of Deuteronomy shows us that God's mission is begins at home. This is what I mean. The title of this book, Deuteronomy, it literally means second law. No, God is not giving a whole second set of laws in this book to add to the other 613. It's Moses reiterating the law given to him at Mount Sinai by God a second time. Why does he do that? If you know anything about biblical history during this era, You know that in the book of Deuteronomy, 40 years have now passed after Israel's dramatic redemption from slavery in Egypt. And no, it didn't take 40 years to walk from Egypt to Palestine. It's not that long of a trip. That first generation of Israelites that had been delivered from slavery, they rebelled against God at the very borders of the promised land, not believing that God could bring them into this land that he had promised they would inherit. So because of their rebellion, their curse to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation had passed, none of them would go into the promised land to take that land. Thus, it'd be the second generation of Israelites after the redemption from slavery in Egypt who would inherit the promised land. So Moses finds it of vital importance to instruct that next generation about what God had done in dramatically delivering them from slavery in Egypt, to instruct them about these various laws that God had graciously given them, to instruct them in life. If God's mission is to continue on in the world, it has to begin with those who are older among God's people, faithfully instructing those of God's people who are younger. That's what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy, both with their words and their lives, showing them what God's like what God's done for us, how God calls us to live. In other words, God's mission begins at home. Some of the language that we just read from Deuteronomy 6 captures this idea brilliantly, but it can be easy to miss. Easy to miss because it's repeated so often in these five books of Moses. Things that we read like in Deuteronomy 6 two, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son And your son's son, all over these books. God's intention is that his mission would start with this type of generational advancement: fathers and sons, fathers and mothers to sons and daughters, older men and women to younger men and women. Sometimes we have a really hard time grasping a lot of the specific ceremonial and civil laws that are given to Moses on Mount Sinai. We can kind of scratch our heads: why is God doing this? When we read Deuteronomy 6, there's something extremely relatable, something earthy, something beautiful in this depiction of mission to our families, this mission from one generation to the next. Simple things like fearing God and obeying his commands communicates volumes to the next generation. There's so much importance in regular conversations about God in the course of your everyday life, in your home and in your regular routine, when you're out running errands in the morning and in the evening. Being able to communicate what God has done for his people in history, but also specifically what God has done in your own life as well. Being able to say things like, There are reasons that my whole life is geared toward loving God and loving my neighbor. I was a slave to sin. But God delivered me out of that by his mighty hand. Being able to communicate that to the next generation. This isn't a mission that requires plane tickets and foreign language training, although sometimes it seems as if the next generation has a foreign language that they speak. (laughs) I can admit that now. This isn't even a mission that has us strategizing about how to break down barriers with our neighbors. Both of those facets of God's mission are important. We'll talk about them in just a minute. But this is a mission of faithfulness with what's right in front of us. God always gifts his people with an incredible number of those from the next generation. At one time, we were that next generation. We just had a baby announcement this morning. God is gifting the next generation to us. What are we going to do with them? before you start maybe yawning or checking out because this facet of mission isn't very flashy or exciting, let me remind you that this facet of mission is actually one of incredible scope. God's mission beginning at home for Abraham back in Genesis 12 was a pretty humble prospect. This is one man seeking to be faithful to a relatively small household, two sons, one who's a child of promise, by the time Abraham's descendants head into Egypt, it's a larger household. Still not much of a blip on the world scale, around 70 people. By the time Abraham's descendants leave Egypt, the scale is of a whole different magnitude hundreds of thousands of people. It may not have been flashy or exciting, but simply passing down fear of God, obedience to his commands from one generation to the next, it has a massive impact. This isn't to say that every member of national Israel at this time was truly one of God's people by faith. That's a whole other conversation but it is to say that hundreds of thousands of people had graciously been granted access to the life-giving words of God simply by God's mission beginning at home. Fathers and mothers talking to sons and daughters. Older men and women talking to younger men and women. You may have been clued in earlier because Jerry talked about this when our kids were dismissed that we have language for this in our mission statement. Gulf Coast Community Church seeks to be a faithful gospel witness to this generation and the next. I hope even as I'm speaking, even as you're kind of absorbing this truth, that your minds are bubbling with applications even now. As a church, we've been entrusted with dozens of members of the next generation in our own congregation, from commissioned students on down to newborns. Yes, commissioned students, I consider you the next generation. You're younger than me. I won't say by how much. What kind of impact will it make in their lives and in our world if we faithfully live out the fear of God and obedience to his commands in the presence of the dozens of members of the next generation we've been entrusted to as a church? What kind of impact will it make if we have regular conversations with them about God in our homes, in our everyday life, in the morning, in the evening? What kind of impact will it make if we faithfully share with them what God has done for his people in history, but also how we were once slaves to sin? But the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. For those of us who are parents, may God grant us clarity on the importance of this mission to our children. May grant us our next generation at Gulf Coast Community Church, these dozens that we've been entrusted with, many of them over next door at NCK right now. May God give us desire to point them to the life-giving words of God. In God's revelation to Moses, it's clear that God's mission begins at home. But God's mission also doesn't stop there. God's mission goes to the ends of the earth Let's look at our final point in Exodus 19, verses five and six. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. We're not going to spend as much time here as we have on the other facets of God's mission this morning, not because God's mission to the ends of the earth is unimportant, not because God's mission to the ends of the earth isn't included in God's word to Moses, mostly for the sake of time, we'll be brief here, but also because God's mission going to the ends of the earth isn't yet seen in its full flowering development, as we'll see it later in scripture. So we'll continue to see this come up. It doesn't mean, however, that we don't see an advancement in God's mission to the ends of the earth. If you remember in Genesis 12, 13, what Ryan preached on a few weeks ago, God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, we see God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. They're advancing in their fulfillment. God's people, now called Israel, they're they're called to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God acknowledges, all the earth is mine, but I've chosen you to do a very specific thing, to be a priesthood who brings blessing to the nations, just like the priesthood of Israel was to be a blessing to Israel. Providentially, not just a few weeks ago, we talked about this notion, God's people being a kingdom of priests from 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In that 1 Peter series, we learned Israel's priests served as mediators for God's people. They brought God to the people through God's word, They brought people to God through sacrifices and prayers. In the time of Moses, God's calling the entire nation to act like priests for all the peoples of the earth. This was the people that God had set apart to bring God to the nations through the truth of his word. The people God had set apart to bring the nations to God through their sacrifices and prayers. So at one level, this concept of God's people serving as a kingdom of priests is not something new for God's people at the coming of Jesus. But what is new is that God's kingdom of priests includes people not only from national Israel, but from every tribe and tongue and nation, people like you and me. We are the kingdom of priests who are to advance God's mission to the ends of the earth, and one of the things that might be helpful for us is God's people living in the U.S., the beginning of the 21st century. It's the idea that the ends of the earth aren't necessarily a place that we need to go to. It's where we live. Jerry highlighted this really effectively a few years ago. I think it was in the, the series on Acts. We don't have to wonder if God's mission is going to reach the ends of the earth. From a certain perspective, it already has And we're living proof of that. From the perspective of Abraham in the second millennium BC, from the perspective of of Moses at the time of the giving of the law, from the perspective of the apostles in the first century, we are the ends of the earth. This has a major effect on what we might consider as our role to play as a kingdom of priests in advancing God's mission to the ends of the earth. It's not as if, if we're not personally called to foreign missions work, the only part we can play in God's mission to the ends of the earth is through our finances and our prayers. Now to be clear, foreign missions work is absolutely essential in providing relief in various parts of the world, supporting the church where it's struggling, pioneering work in parts of the world where the gospel hasn't reached. I hope you do support foreign mission work with your finances and your prayers. Gulf Coast as a church supports numerous mission works in all parts of the globe. I also pray that God continues to call men and women from our congregation to go to what we consider the ends of the earth. But our identity is a kingdom of priests. The reality that we live at the ends of the earth, it also means that we've got a more direct role to play in God's mission, going to the ends of the earth. It means that each one of us serves as his priests at the very ends of the earth where we live. Amen. It means that each one of us is called to bring people to God and to bring God to people here at the ends of the earth to our neighbors, relatives, friends, and coworkers. Would God carry out that work among us? How do you solve a problem like Moses. I hope in our time this morning it's been helpful showing how God's words to Moses, they're not really a problem to be solved. They're a wonderful and gracious expansion of God's mission in the world. They're words which pick up on what's come before in God's work of creation, his promises to Adam and Eve, his covenant with Abraham. They're words that point us forward to God's advancing mission that will be carried forward by God's prophets and apostles stages in God's advancing mission that we look forward to covering in the future installments of this series but it's also worth stating as we close that God's words to Moses were never meant to be a final answer to questions about who God is and what he's doing in the world in fact if you take time to read God's words to Moses in its entirety you'll find the the tentative nature of these words they're on full display within the law itself The reason there's an extensive system of animal sacrifices baked into the 613 commandments given to God's people is that God knew they would never be able to keep the law perfectly. The reason the law includes not only a section of blessings to be expected if God's people upheld the law, but also a detailed section of the curses to be expected if God's people abandoned it, is that God knew his people would eventually turn away from love of God and love of neighbor. He knew they would turn to idolatry and injustice, that the only suitable curse would be exile from the promised land. Read Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68 this afternoon when you've got some time. Not the most uplifting read, I'll warn you. It gives you a preview of where we'll be going next in God's mission. But God's words to Moses not only anticipate Israel's failure, the tentative nature of these words, They also point forward in numerous, complex, beautiful ways to the one who will be God's final answer to questions about who God is and what he's doing in the world. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus is anticipated as the new temple, the great high priest, the once-for-all sacrifice the religious system is pointing to. Jesus is anticipated as the perfect king of Deuteronomy 17 who would read God's law and fear God and keep his statutes all the days of his life. Jesus is anticipated as the prophet like Moses who is to come in Deuteronomy 18, the prophet to whom God's people should listen. Jesus is also anticipated as the one who would deliver God's people from slavery to the cruel taskmaster of sin. The final answer of who God is and what he's doing in the world is coming. And God's words to Moses point us to that. May God draw our hearts this morning to Jesus the full revelation of God's glorious character, the centerpiece of the story of God's mission. Let's pray. God, may your law, these words given to Moses, may they be a delight to us. May we find joy in them more than in all riches. As they point to your gracious redemption in Jesus. As they point to a life lived in love for you and love for our neighbors. May these words be a delight for us as your people. Participating in your mission in the world. Amen.